We all like to be first. We all like to be first. I think, if we're honest, we all like the idea of being first, or at least close to it. That idea of being the greatest. Being number one. Let me tell you a time when I was number one. This is my medal. This is my bright, shiny little thing. This is the medal I received the day that I felt I was the greatest. And I had worked so hard, folks. I had prepared. I had trained. I had worked my hardest to get ready for the day when I would compete for this medal. Practiced. Practiced. And then practiced some more. I was nervous. I could remember the tension. The apprehension taken to the stage. Would I achieve the number one spot? And I did. And I walked off the stage with my head held high thinking I am the best. I can get no better than I have done in that moment. What did I get my medal for, you might ask? I'm kind of hesitant to tell you. (laughs) But I got my medal for playing the accordion. (laughs) Yes, Fitzroy, I am a closet accordion player. And the truth is, not even the Sounds Good Orchestra could make this instrument cool. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's good to get excited about the things that we do well. Especially when they're things that God has given us the ability to do. But we run into problems, don't we? When we get to thinking that we're the greatest. When we get to thinking that we're the best. When we get to thinking that I'm number one. And those things like self-praise and boasting and self-aggrandizing, they're all very, very unattractive, aren't they? In our 21st century world. There's one story which I think illustrates how foolish it is to think that you're always the greatest And it's a story, yes, about someone who said he was the greatest, Muhammad Ali. I grew up in a home, and my dad's favorite sport was not football or not rugby. It was boxing. So I have memories as a little kid of sitting up in the wee small hours watching these boxing matches with my dad. And he'd be telling me stories about all the great boxers from his childhood, boxers like Rocky Marciana, all these great, great names, and, and uh, he loved it. And probably, though, my favorite boxer of them all was Ali. And Ali was known as much for his quick-fire wit and his showmanship as he was for his prowess in the boxing ring. And there's a great story told about Ali. One, one time he was flying across America on, on a, a jumbo jet after, I guess, one of his victories. And he was sitting with his crew 
They're all enjoying themselves in first class. And the captain makes an announcement over the announcement, the, the PA system. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard it if you've been on a plane. Please return to your seats. Fasten your seatbelts because we're about to encounter some turbulence. So the flight attendant was going up and down the aisle making sure that everybody had their seatbelt fastened. And she came to Muhammad Ali. And Ali's sitting there, kicking back, relaxing, his seatbelt clearly unfastened. And the flight attendant said to Muhammad Ali, Sir, have you not heard the captain's announcement? Fasten your seatbelt. We're about to enter some turbulence. Ali looks up at the flight attendant and he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant, quick as a flash, said back to Muhammad Ali, Superman doesn't need a plane. Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> Imagine the arrogance of Muhammad Ali thinking, I'm so great, I don't need to listen to what the captain's got to tell me. Ali in that moment really needed a dose of humility. And so I think do the disciples in John chapter 13. They could have done with a dose of humility as well. We're jumping ahead in the events of Holy Week from Palm Sunday to Thursday evening that Jesus and his disciples are gathered together in the upper room. They're about to enjoy their final meal together. They're going to celebrate the Passover. And keep in mind that these disciples lived in a world where honor and reputation were highly valued. Humility. Humility? That was the stuff of slaves. Certainly not respected rabbis. So here they are. And what would you be doing if you knew you had less than 24 hours to live? Jesus' mind is set in preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. This is a long night of last-minute interactions and instructions, last-minute encouragement and expressions of love. And at the beginning of chapter 13, John discloses what Jesus knows about himself in these final hours. Now before the peace feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. To the very end. Yes, he knew that the end was coming. It was nearing the finish line for his mission. He knew what lay ahead of him. But when he talks about loving his disciples to the end, it's much more than that. It means much, much more. It also means that Jesus loved them fully and completely. Without reservation. Without condition. Jesus loved them to the end. And as we gather here in this church this morning, that's still true. Jesus loves you without reservation, without condition. And then John, in chapter 13, goes on to reveal what Jesus does in response to this knowledge. 
Knowing that his hour was about to come, he'd love the disciples to the end. What does Jesus do? In verses 4 and 5, we see one of the biggest expressions of his love. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. Jesus got up from the table, wraps the towel around him, and starts to wash his disciples' feet. Now, the washing of feet was a custom in Jesus' day. When you entered someone's house, they would have someone wash the dirt of the city streets off their guest's feet. People wore open sandals. The streets were dusty and dirty. It was hot. It was grimy. It was a good thing to do. It was a proper and right thing to do. But don't miss the fact here in John chapter 13 that the meal is already underway when Jesus goes about washing his disciples' feet. They've already started to celebrate the Passover. Foot washing normally occurred before the meal. When guests entered the house. So, why hadn't the disciples washed each other's feet? Why hadn't someone washed Jesus' feet? If there was any night, any night, surely this should be the night that someone should have served Jesus. It was the Last Supper. Why did they start the meal with dirty feet? Well, maybe they got distracted by everything that had been going on. All the things that had taken place from the events on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem to Jesus clearing the temple to his teaching and instruction that week. The difficult, hard things that he said and taught. The challenge that he was facing. The atmosphere. The tension. The embers of revolution were fanning. Maybe they were just distracted. But I think, actually, we get a real accurate idea of what's going on and why the feet hadn't been washed when we look at Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. And there we discover that the disciples have an argument over who would be the greatest. These disciples were a bit like Muhammad Ali claiming, I'm the greatest. I'm number one. They'd grown up in this world that was charged with dominion, domination, oppression. They had lots of arguments before and Jesus had made it very clear the way the world operates, the way that Gentiles lord it over people, it will not be that way among you. But when they entered the upper room that night, Apparently, there was no servant to perform the customary washing of the feet. And it seems like none of the disciples were willing to take on that menial task. These guys were all too ready to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. And then Jesus turns things upside down. Jesus' act is nothing short of scandalous. 
The king who comes from God takes on the menial task of a slave. Takes off his garments and he washes their feet. And this act points to an even greater scandal that's going to unfold in the dark hours ahead when Jesus will lay down his life crucified on a Roman cross. You see, when Jesus gets on his knees to wash his followers' feet, it's a powerful picture anticipating and displaying Jesus' attitude of self-emptying, sacrificial love and service. He's showing us when he does this, what's motivating him to go to the cross. Jesus serves because he loves. He serves because he loves. Being a servant means being selfless. It means putting the needs of others before your own needs. And that's exactly what you do when you truly love someone. Jesus genuinely cared about people. The gospel writers, time and time and time again, they write about Jesus when he saw the needs of the people being moved with compassion. Jesus cared. Jesus loved. Jesus served. And when he gives his life as a ransom for many, it's the greatest act of humility imaginable. And it's a reflection of the very gospel itself. This upside down message with grace at the center where the poor are valued and the least are greatest and kings become servants. And with all this going on, as Jesus washes their feet and he finally gets to Peter, Peter's head spinning. He can't take in what he's seeing. He doesn't understand. He's shocked at the scandal of what Jesus is doing. And in effect, what Peter says is, you will never, ever, ever wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Jesus is demonstrating the kind of attitude that he expects his followers to embody. An attitude of Humility. Humility. And I'm sure Peter had this episode in mind much later in his life when he commanded his readers in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the pride but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the noble choice to forgo your status and deploy your resources and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. When we talk about humility, we're talking about a willingness to hold power in service to another. Humility flows from a real sense of your own worth, of who you are, your security in Christ and your abilities. Jesus' humility flew from a real sense of who he was. Humility is a willing, it's a choice. If it's not a choice, it's humiliation. And humility is always social. Humility is not modesty. Humility is about redirecting your powers and your resources for others. And that's what Jesus does. Let me give you an example. Another example from sport, from boxing. This is Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer ever to live. 
Ollie's number two. But Joe Lewis was number one. And in the 1930s, there's a story told that Joe Lewis was on a bus. And he was on this bus in Detroit, and three young men got on the bus. And they started to try to pick a fight with him. They didn't know who he was. They insulted him. They goaded him. But he just sat there. He said nothing. And then as the bus stopped, he got up from his seat and he walked over towards the three men and he took out of his pocket a business card and he handed it to them and it simply said on it, Joe Lewis, boxer. And he walked off the bus. And these three young men realized just who it was that they tried to pick a fight with. That's humility. Joe Lewis who, it was said, could knock out a horse. How they figured that out, I have no idea. But Joe Lewis, who was bigger than them, who had incredible power, chose to hold that power in service to three very, very fortunate young men in Detroit in the 1930s. That's what Jesus expects from his followers. That's how we're to act. John 13, verses 14 and 15. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The mark of a true disciple is love. It's a love for God and a love for others. We represent Jesus in our community, in our workplaces, in our families. We set aside our rights and our reputations and our positions in order that we might put our lives on the line for others, for the sake of others. We don't avoid or ignore people. We seek people. We seek to befriend them, to come alongside people and journey with them. We serve people who are marginalized. We're forgotten. We break out of ourselves into the lives of others. We seek justice for those who are excluded from it. We feed the hungry. We defend the defenseless. These are the activities of those who would seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Of those who would seek to be humble. To lower themselves. And to follow Jesus into the service life. To improve our serve. Thompson. We're in a church family where this kind of service is encouraged. Intentional, tangible, beautiful, infectious expressions of serving people. I love it. And as you head into this week into Holy Week, look for opportunities to serve. Look for opportunities to demonstrate the humility of Jesus. Look for opportunities where you can improve your serve. How do you improve your serve? Develop that attitude of humility. A servant's not out to impress the world, but impact the world. And it starts with reminding yourself what God has done for you. One of the greatest incentives when it comes to serving others is to recognize that Jesus has a vast, unconditional love for you. And if you grasp this love, it'll motivate you to want to serve others as an expression of gratitude to Jesus. Grateful people 
our great servants. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mysterious working of your Spirit, who weaves all things together toward a redemption more good and more glorious than we have yet eyes to see, for courage to hope for. May our love and our labors now echo your love and your labors, O Lord. O Spirit of God, shape our hearts. Spirit of God, now guide our hands. Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us.